0: We continue our series that we started several weeks ago called God's Story, Our Story, a, an attempt, a journey of discovering and building a worldview that is founded and based upon the word of God. That we survey the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And yes, we will eventually one day get to Revelation. But it's important that we spend our time seeking how God's Word lays the foundation for every area of life. That there's not one thing in life that does not Reveal that is not revealed to us by God and His Word. This week we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. Next week we're going to be looking at Genesis for those that are reading ahead and following along with us and want to be prepared. We'll be reading Genesis chapter 3 verses 10 through the end, through verse 24. But for this morning, we read what is known as the fall, the fall of humanity, the fall of the world, where sin and darkness and brokenness entered into the world through sin and through the fall. Now, Genesis chapter 3, the passage that we will read this morning is a real historical account From history. This is not figurative, it's not symbolic. Jesus did not come to die for a figurative Adam and Eve. Jesus came to die for a real Adam and Eve. So what you are going to read and hear this morning really happened in human history. If Adam and Eve were not real figures in human history, then Paul's entire doctrine of salvation is messed up. Because Paul's entire doctrine of salvation, particularly in Romans chapter 5, is based on a real Adam and Eve. This is a historical narrative of what happened. And only if it's a historical narrative of what happened, can be, we can begin to make sense of why the world is the way it is. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to do his desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. What a story it's been so far. As we study Genesis 1 and 2, to think of a world that looks the way that it Reads in Genesis 1 and 2, the beautiful beginning of the world where God enters into the darkness of the world and he brings light, a God entering into the chaos and bringing order, God making male and female in his own image that they would represent him as his co regents and ambassadors in the world. Last week, how beautiful the story of God not wanting man to live alone, but creating a female to be a suitable helper, that they would live together as suitable helpers in paradise, that the woman would be a suitable helper to the male in paradise with all of the provisions that they could ever hope for or desire. It sounds too good to be true, but it should leave you this morning going, what in the world happened that's utopia. This idyllic picture of paradise in Genesis 1 and 2 is so far from the world that I live today with the brokenness of my body and the brokenness of my personhood and the brokenness of my relationships and the brokenness of this world that is rampant and widespread. What in the world happened But as I've been saying every week, that without understanding Genesis 1 and 2, you will never understand origin. You will never understand where this world came from. You will never understand where we came from. You will never understand God in all of his glory and his splendor. Just as you will never understand those foundational truths without understanding Genesis 1 and 2, likewise, you will never understand why the world is the way it is without studying and knowing and understanding Genesis chapter three, we will always be left wondering why do we live in this type of world with all of its pains and all of its struggle and all of its tragedy. We will never, ever be able to make sense of it. Until we understand what happened in Genesis chapter three. Like I said in the introduction, this is known as the fall, the fall of the world, the fall of humanity, where where our first parents made the absurd decision that they could live life on their own. That they could live life better than the life prescribed by God. And sin and death. And darkness and brokenness ensued and entered the world. It is the story of sin. Let's look at it together in Genesis chapter 3. The first thing that we see in our passage this morning, that before the act of sin occurs, before the act of rebellion occurs, the first thing we see here is the temptation of sin long before the act we see the woman we see the woman tempted in the garden and how is she tempted satan the the adversary the devil the deceiver the deceitful one comes in the form of who he comes in the form of a serpent how crafty of him he takes the form of a of a of a serpent of a beast of the field that that the first woman and the first man would have been used to seeing And this is his cunning way of of coming into their lives and into the garden to tempt them. And so we see in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, the temptation of sin. And we see the woman tempted by the serpent, by the serpent undermining God's authority. How does he undermine the... The authority of God. Well, we see it in verse 1. The serpent asks this question in undermining God's authority. Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? What, what the serpent is trying to do is to trying to tempt the woman to see how absurd is this? This is your garden. These are your trees. This is the fruit of your labor. I mean, are you kidding me? God would actually want to oppress you in that way? And so what the serpent begins to do in temptation of the woman is to tempt, tempt her by undermining the authority of God. To, for her to begin to question, you really think that God knows better than you? you? You think that God is a better authority over your life than you? And begins to undermine the authority of God. Did God really say this? and how sneaky and tempting the tempter is and getting a foothold into her life and also getting a foothold into our life to begin to undermine the authority structure that God has put in place so that we can actually begin to think, and this is what began to happen with the woman in the garden. As she begins to undermine the authority of God, she begins to think in her life, maybe I can govern my life better. Maybe you're right. Maybe the authority that I have over my life actually works out better for me than the authority that God has over my life. God surely wouldn't want to punish his children with such a prohibition like this. And see what this tempter begins to do is tempts the woman and begins to tempt us by undermining the authority of God. But not only does we see the temptation in that light, but, but the tempter also undermines the veracity of God's word. It undermines the truthfulness of God's word. See what the serpent continues to do is not only undermine the authority of God, but undermine the truthfulness or the veracity of God's word. What does the serpent do in verse 4? The serpent says, You will not die. What? It's clear as day. Go back and read it. God said, you can eat from any tree. Just don't eat from this tree or what will happen? You won't die. Right? You read this and you go, how absurd. But look how the serpent works. Look how the tempter works. Takes the truth of God and undermines its truthfulness. Undermines the veracity. You're going to fall for that? And what the serpent is doing here in verse 4 is he is mocking God. He is making a mockery of God in his word. And do not be deceived that, God, that, the, that the serpent loves to do that with you every single day. It takes the truth of God that is black and white. It takes the truth of God that is never changing. And the serpent comes to you, the tempter comes to you every single day, whether you realize it or not, and tries you to buy into the lie. Did God really say this? Was he really that strict about this truth? Was he really strict about this prohibition? I mean, do you really think it's that bad if you cheat a little there and you cheat a little here? I mean, do you see what the serpent is doing? Taking a black and white truth, eat from this tree, you will die. And the serpent, I mean, could not be any more deceptive, says, did he really say you would die? You surely won't die. And this is how Satan gains a foothold. By making a mockery of God to get you to buy into the lie and to get you to ask the question, are you really going to live your life with these kinds of restrictions as found in God's word? Are you really going to limit your life to, 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 a, to a book that was written thousands of years ago? Are you really going to limit your life to... Uh, to to God and to this ancient religion that you call Christianity and tries to deceive you to buy into this lie every single day. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, a a city that is rampant with um, secular humanism and intellectualism that is devoid from truth and devoid from God. He says this, he says, in all of his discussions with non-Christians in New York City, one out of a hundred one out of a hundred are typically people with a rational argument for why they don't believe in God. 99 out of hundred simply sneer and mock Christianity. One out of a hundred typically have a rational argument for why they don't believe in God. But typically they just sneer. And that is what the serpent is doing. And do not be deceived that that is what he does with you every day. He looks at you and he says, You Christian that actually believe this Bible in the 21st century, what are you, some Bible thumping Christian? Really? You actually buy into this? And the serpent just stands there and goes, and he makes a mockery of God and of the truth. And what ultimately is the serpent saying in Genesis chapter 3? What he is saying is something that is rampant in our culture today. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. We hear it all the time, don't we? Follow your heart is the motto and it is the creed of our culture. Just follow your heart. Don't follow truth. Don't follow God. Don't follow a book that was written thousands of years ago. Just follow your heart. And I want to say Eve followed her heart. How did that work out for her? And if I hear one more person say, I'm just going to follow my heart, Pastor. I'm going to follow my gut. Your heart, your gut, your instinct, that's what gets you into trouble. Your heart is wicked and evil and deceives you all the time. That's the problem. We follow our heart all the time. He followed our heart. And you try to follow your heart every day. We don't need to be men and women that follow our heart. We need to be men and women who follow the truth of God's word because it is true. And it will never let us down. She gives in to the temptation. But secondly, we not only see Eve giving in to the temptation, the temptation eventually leads to the second thing that happens here in Genesis chapter 3. We actually see the act of sin itself. The temptation eventually leads to the act of sin. In verse 5 and 6, It says in verse 5, For God knows that when you'll eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's all that Eve needed to hear. You'll be like who? You'll be like God. And then verse 6, what does Eve do? She takes the fruit, her husband partakes, because misery loves company, and they both together eat of the fruit because they hear those words, You will be like God And the act of sin itself was the act of our first parents entering into cosmic rebellion. It was the act of our first parents saying this, I want to be God. And we have suffered from that rebellion ever since. You and I by nature long to take the place of God. That ultimately was the act that brought sin and ruin and chaos into this world when men and women following after Adam and Eve would now say, I don't want God to be God. And I don't want this God ruling over my life, but I want to rule my life. And ever since the garden, we have reversed the creation order. Remember the creation order was this. God rules And then he creates man in his image to rule over creation. And man would rule over creation, would rule over the creature. And here in Genesis 3, we see the reverse. We see the beast ruling over man, and we see man trying to rule over God. And the world would never be the same. The world would never be the same. The opposite of God's plan. They embraced in Genesis 3 the big lie That it's not good enough that I'm created in your image, God. That it's not good enough that you've provided everything for me, God. That it's not good enough that you've called me to be your agent of renewal in this world. I want to be God. And in Genesis 5 and 6, we see cosmic rebellion. And forever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been been born into a state of wanting to take the place of God. This is how deep our hatred is for God, that when God eventually came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, we eventually hung him on the cross. You and I by nature don't know what to do with a God in our lives and in our world. And we will do everything possible to run from this God and to put this God down because in your heart by nature, it's called total depravity, you want to be God. We want to say every day, I'm the captain of the ship. I reign and I rule. And we have seen it for thousands of years in a myriad of ways in which we express every day how we want to rule and how we want to play God. For people that are always anxious and worried, what are you saying in that moment of being anxious and worried? What you're saying is, I know how to run the world. I know how to run my life. And if I could just have more control over my life and everybody else's life, this world would be a better place. And so for some of us, we live our lives in a state of constant anxiety and worry worried about how things are unfolding and not willing to submit to the authority of God in all things. People that go through their life and constantly seeking vengeance and always holding a grudge and always bitter is also an attempt to play God. Because you're saying in that moment, the world would be such a better place if I was just allowed to get even. Just this one time, this world would be such a better place if I was able to put that person in their place. And so the person that is constantly bitter and angry, don't blow that off and say, that's just the way they are. No, if they are a child of God, that person needs to submit to the authority of God in their life. That see, recognizing the authority of God in our lives decreases our anxiety and our worry, decreases our need to be right, decreases our need to hold a grudge or to be bitter or to seek vengeance because you realize that you are not God. But there is a God who does all things and we submit to his authority in our lives. Lastly, we not only see the temptation of sin and the act of sin. But last but not least, third, we see the consequences of sin. In verse 7 and 8, we see the consequences of sin in this passage. And they are ugly. We see the aftermath of rebellion. And it, is, it has been said that verse 7 and 8 in chapter 3 tell the rest of the story. Not the rest of the story of Genesis chapter 3. And not the rest of the story of Genesis. But verses 7 and 8 tell the rest of the story of the Bible. Because it's in verse 7 and 8. With the fall of humanity, what do we see? We see humanity running and hiding. And that will be the story for the rest of human history and the rest of the story of God, that we will see week after week humanity running and hiding from God. And we see them hiding here in the garden in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3. It says, "...the eyes of them were opened in verse 7, and they knew that they were naked." How tragic. The first way that the first consequence we see is they hide from themselves. The end of chapter 2 says they were naked and unashamed. And now all of a sudden they are naked and they are hiding from themselves. How are they hiding from themselves? By sowing fig leaves. Because they are ashamed of themselves. And so if you ever wonder... Why am I struggling with self-image? And why am I struggling with constant guilt and shame over who I am and who I've become? Genesis chapter 3. The first consequence we see is we are no longer understanding ourselves as a child of God, born and created in his image with self-worth and self-dignity because that we are image bearers. But now we are naked and a shame and we are hiding ourselves. We see this psychological brokenness. But not only are they hiding from themselves, they're hiding from each other. In verse 8, they're running and they're hiding. Here are the, the first husband and wife that were created... as as the perfect pair for one another in perfect community are now broken with one another. And so the next time you wonder, why are all my relationships so hard? Why is my relationship with my spouse so hard? And why is my relationship with my kids so hard? And why is my relationship with my friends so hard? Why are all of my relationships so difficult? You look to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the consequence of relational brokenness. But the greatest consequence of all is it says that they hid themselves from God. They not only hide themselves in their shame, they not only hide from each other in relational brokenness, but they hide themselves from God. What a tragedy to be created in the image of God and to have perfect communion with Him and then all of a sudden running and hiding from God. We see theological brokenness. And how tragic it is that now we will see a story of a people constantly running and hiding from the God that created them. And in fact, the New Testament is strong enough to say that we are born haters of God, hating God from the moment of conception. It's tragic. And one could rightfully say... That God had every right in the very next verse, in verse 9, to conclude his story by saying, and this is how the story ended. Amen. God had every right in verse 9 to write... Through Moses, that the world ended and its people in it. I gave it my best and I'm throwing in the towel. And God would have had every right to say, I created them in my image and they blew it. End of story. But that's not how the story ends. And in my opinion, verse 9 of chapter 3 is one of the most hopeful verses in all of the Bible. I want you to underline it and circle it. Because in verse 9, instead of God saying, you're going to hide from me, then I'm going to hide from you. You're going to run from me, I'm going to run from you. Instead, verse 9 reads this, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? What we see in verse 9 is the pursuit of God after his wayward bride. Just when you think God could not do any more and God had every right to turn his back on his people, we read of a God who continues to pursue And not only will 7 and 8 be the rest of the storyline of the Bible of us running and hiding, but verse 9 would be that narrative as well, that we will run and hide, but God will always pursue. Say that over and over again in your mind. This is the rest of the story. You could draw a line in your Bible in between verse 6 and verse 7 and say chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 3 verse 6 is one part of the story and verse 7 and beyond is the rest. We will now run and hide but God will always pursue and he will run you down. You see, the rest of the story of the Bible is this. The first Adam refused to yield to the will of God. But the second Adam, we're told, in the garden of Gethsemane on his knees, says, not my will, but your will, O God. You see, we read here that the first Adam wanted to be like God, in equality. But we read that there's another Adam that comes, and his name's Jesus Christ, and in Philippians chapter 2, It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, unlike the first Adam, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to death, even death on the cross. We have a new Adam that has come and his name is Jesus Christ and this Adam will pursue you. He will pursue his wayward bride. We will run and we will hide in our shame but God comes down. That is what we're getting ready to celebrate in Advent, the pursuing love of God where God says in the person of Jesus Christ that I will take your place as a wretched sinner on the cross. It's the story of God pursuing his wayward, runaway bride. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this, Jesus? That you might have lived your entire life as a rebel running from God rolling your eyes at the idea of submitting your life to this God, rolling your, I- your eyes at the idea of following Jesus Christ, but make no mistake, only the fool leaves here today and says, I will now continue to live in rebellion to this God. Only the fool leaves here today and says, I will continue to run and hide. Only the fool neglects this gift the person of Jesus Christ, he invites you this morning to come and you can run to this Jesus this morning because he has first run to you. C.K. Chesterton, the great British theologian, in contemplating the gospel says, when a religious person is asked, are you a Christian? The religious person in their pride says, but of course, But C.K. Chesterton says, when a true Christian asks, are you a Christian? They simply laugh. See, the person who has encountered the love of God cannot fathom that God would love such a wretched sinner like them. They simply sit there and laugh at the idea. Amazing, amazing love. How can it be? And Christ, my Savior, would die for me. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. We slapped God in the face, but in return, he kissed us.